the reported numbers are to be believed, 17 UFC events have sold over 1 million pay-per-views, the first being UFC 92 in December 2008. Of those 17 events, six have featured Conor McGregor in the headline fight. That would be impressive by itself, but those six include the top four highest-selling events in UFC history and six of the top eight. The other two of the top eight? UFC 100, which featured Brock Lesnar and George St. Pierre, and last July's UFC 251, which featured a title triple header and took place in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic when there was far less competition for the eyes and dollars of sports fans, let alone fight fans. All of this is simply to underscore the fact that McGregor is, far and away, the biggest draw in MMA history. None of his peers, not Lesnar, St. Pierre, Chuck Liddell, John Jones, not even Ronda Rousey comes close, at least in the sense of pure dollar signs. While stardom is more subjective than pay-per-views and live gates, McGregor is also probably the biggest star the sport has ever seen, or at least on the same tier as Lesnar and Rousey, both of whom had the advantage of already being famous before their fight careers. For this reason, anything the Irish superstar does is big news. Whether it's his next fight, his most recent case of public misbehavior, or the newest set of disturbing allegations about serious, even criminal, private misbehavior. Even when he isn't present, what he says and does is never far from front-page news. Fortunately for us as fans and media, this week, McGregor is present, and we get to talk about him doing what he does best. Get in the cage and remind us what all the hype is about and where all the fame started. Good evening and welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC 257, McGregor vs. Poirier 2. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com, and with me is Keith Schillen, executive producer of the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network, as well as a writer for SureDog.com and a host and creator of numerous shows for SureDog Radio, including the Schillen and Duffy Show. Keith, how are you doing this evening? Man, I'm doing excellent. Another fantastic introduction. Um... The question I have is what what's going to happen more? Is it going to be more pay-per-views or more listens to this podcast? Like that's the real question. You know, I I don't I I don't trust ESPN to give us the real numbers. I have the feeling that you know, uh that they'll be, they'll be dumping votes, you know, if you know what I mean. <laughs> All right. So so the question is will this one do over a million? Yes. I mean, with Dana cracking down on the illegal streaming, I mean, that's going to have to do over a million, right? I I imagine. I Obviously, it's a complete impossibility, but I would love to have numbers on how many illegal streams went out for each, you know, UFC pay-per-view. Like, you know, say UFC, you know, 101 did, you know, 900,000 pay-per-views and was illegally streamed 2.3 million times. It would be nice to have just an aggregate number of how many people wanted to watch it that badly. You know, that they either exposed their computer to viruses from Slovenia or shelled out 55 bucks. Yeah. Shout out all our listeners from Slovenia that are sending people (laughs) viruses. (laughs) I see you guys. All right. So I always... I the big pay per views, you know, not during COVID, but normal times. I invite people over, and a lot of people come over. But the people who don't come, they'll be like, "Ah, I don't feel like driving over to your house, or I have something next morning." But they always watch anyways, and they always it's not through ordering a pay per view. So, 
I think the numbers are very. I would have. I'd probably guess almost fifty fifty. I I would not be surprised at all by that. No, I I agree. Let me ask you a question about this one. Kind of since we'll probably end up talking about McGregor and McGregor versus Poirier quite a bit. Chop that fight off of this card. How good is the rest of this card? Is the rest of this card pay-per-view worthy no. even without that fight? No, it's a fantastic fight night card, but not pay-per-view. I agree. I think top to bottom, this is a sensational card. One one good example or one good indicator of how good a card is is parody. How close the fights are on on paper. To peel the uh, the curtain back a little bit. I run the Sherdog staff pick them. You know, we just do a pick them contest for every UFC card and a, a selection of cards from other promotions. One of the reasons we don't do more Bellator cards is even the big Bellator cards. Just every every fight is there's a five to one favorite, so it's just weird to put up a pick them where almost all the fights are like unanimous among us. Yeah, they always have at least one fight on the main card that is, most people's opinion, a showcase fight. It'll be the yeah. prospect they want to get over, whatever. Yeah. This this card doesn't have much of that. There are 12 fights on this card. Seven of them, the favorite is like minus 170 or less. Like yeah. half the card, half the fights in this card are close to pick'ems. Yeah, and even some of the ones that aren't pick them like for example the main event that's mm -hmm. more the line movement is more based on betters in, in in not your normal mma betters just those addicts of betters who they they bet on nfl playoffs on sunday they bet on college football they throw stuff on basketball games fights oh let me take mcgregor i know him like that because no matter who you take in this fight you don't feel like Connor should be over three to one favorite, even though he starts Poirier the first fight. Well, how many years ago it was? Like Dustin Poirier is one of the greatest fighters in UFC history. He's one of the hottest guys. He's been doing it, and I don't want to go too far. There's no bad because we get into it my prediction. But doesn't Connor McGregor should be a three to one favorite? All right. So all the angry emails from Irish fans. Uh, that's <laughs> I'll I'll put Keith's email address in the description of the video. All right, you ready to start talking about some fights? Yeah, I'm always ready. We start off with a flyweight prospect matchup between two very interesting uh, young fighters. We have Amir Albazi versus Jaga Jumagulov. Albazi, the 27-year-old Iraqi Swede by way of London, is 13-1 as a professional mixed martial artist. He is 1-0 in the UFC, having choked out Malcolm Gordon at UFC Fight Night 172 last July. He takes on Jumagulov. Uh, the 32-year-old from Kazakhstan is 13-4. He is 0-1 in the UFC, having lost to Hauli Paiva at UFC 251 last July. As mentioned off the top of the show, there are a lot of really close fights on this card on the books. This is one of them. Jamagalov currently a very slight favorite around minus 120. Albazi available at even money as the uh, slight underdog. I'll start off by, by saying I, I'm impressed, actually, that Jamagalov is the slight favorite here. It hopefully means that the people making the odds, watched his UFC debut 
because not only does Howley and Paiva blow weight by quite a bit, I mean, it's different to blow weight by three pounds when you weigh 125 as opposed to like 205. And I thought Jamagolov won the fight. I thought it was a terrible decision. Uh, I, I like Jamagolov's game. I think he's uh, probably a keeper for the UFC flyweight division. I think Albazi is a bad matchup for him. Jamagolov is, uh, I think of him as a volume kickboxer uh, without a ton of power and one who keeps kind of a deliberate pace. He'll ramp up his output over the course of a fight. You know, it's not that he's a slow starter, but just kind of a deliberate starter. Uh, I think Albazi is going to be uh, faster than him. I think Albazi is uh, more aggressive. And I think he, he'll probably sock away two rounds by the time Jamagalov really gets untracked. It seems like a pretty simple, straightforward pick to me. Give me Albazi by decision, probably two rounds to one. Yeah, so I know why the line is so close is because this is a fantastic matchup to start the card. It is. I like. I really like both these guys. Uh, I'll start with Zamagli. Oh man, I, I don't like the pronunciation pronunciation <laughs> of their names, but uh, Zamagilov. I'll start with him. Thirty-two years old. You mentioned the Paiva matchup. I don't know if it was a robbery, but yeah, I seen a lot of people thinking he won, and, and rightfully so. I think I might have scored it for him too. Or uh, he's a southpaw. He's a pressure fighter. He's just like a nonstop ball of energy. He throws some hard, wild strikes. He loses a little power because he throws from his hips, but he has some really good pocket boxing. When he does like his his lead left. Excuse me, his lead right hook is probably one of his best strikes. Uh, he's more of a grinding wrestler than he is an explosive, like, get-on-your-hips wrestler. Um, usually he'll get in the close and like look for, like, a foot trip. I do think he needs to improve his takedown defense. Um, going back to the regional scene, he took on Ali Bagatinov, uh, you know, former title challenger. And Bagatinov took him down fairly easily. I actually thought Bag- he beat Bagatinov. I actually thought Bagatinov should have got the win in that fight. Um, and that one I actually think might be a little bit of Robbie. Uh, so kind of, I guess he kind of balanced each other out. Uh, but the thing that really impressed me most about him is his cardio. He went hard against Holland Piver. He, you know, he's a he was a regional champion who went 25 minutes on the regional scene. So he showed that if you know goes deep in the fight, he can do well. Albazi, he's only 27 years old. He's a very technically sound striker, very accurate. He cuts angles so well. Works behind a very busy jab. He loves to work himself into range, and when he finds his range, then he unloads with hard shots when they become available. Uh, he keeps his distance very well with his check left hook. Calf kicks are a big weapon of his. I, he also is very well-rounded. He has great reactionary double. Like he'll force you to kind of over-pursue, and then he's on your hips slamming you. Suffocating top pressure, advances to position uh, you know, from guard to half guard to side mount. He's, he's, he's constantly improving his position on the ground. Uh, he's got eight career submissions in his um, in his career and get the s- submission off his back. This is a great matchup to kick off the card. I like both these guys. Like I said in our last prediction show, I kind of lo- looked at it like Leonardo versus Ferro, where Leonardo might have been a little bit more UFC ready, but Ferro, I thought, had the much higher ceiling. I feel the same way here. Like I feel like Zamagulov is is more seasoned, but I like Albazi's ceiling a little better. I'm going to take... 
Albazi to take this one. I think he's going to pick apart from distance. I think he's also going to win some wrestling exchanges, and I'll get I'll take Albazi by unanimous decision. The UFC 257 prelims move on with a featherweight matchup between Nick Lentz and Movsar Evloev. Lentz, the 36-year-old, is 30-11-2 with one no contest overall. He is 14-8-1 with one no contest in the UFC. A theme of our preview for the last card, UFC Fight Island 8, was how many fighters were fighting on that card who had not fought at all in 2020 just because of COVID or whatever. Uh, Lentz is on the cusp of that. It's almost a year since he fought. He did fight in 2020, but it was like on January 25th. So it's almost exactly a year since his last fight, which was a unanimous decision loss to Arnold Allen at UFC uh, Blades versus Dos Santos. He'll be taking on the prospect Evloev, 26 years old. The Russian is a perfect 13-0 as a professional mixed martial artist, he is 3-0 since joining the UFC, uh, fought most recently in July, where he defeated English wrestler Mike Grundy in a memorably scramble-filled uh, 15 minutes of wrestling madness. Evloev is the strong favorite, one of the highest favorites on the card, if not the highest, sitting at minus 440. If you like Lentz as the underdog, he is available at plus 350. Keith, how do you feel about Lentz versus Evloev? Um, So this one would be one of my more confident picks. I'm sure you probably know where I'm going with this before I even make it. Yeah, so I'll start with Lentz. Lentz has like tons of miles on his tires. I mean, this guy's 36 years old. I think this is his 25th appearance in the UFC he also has a style that really leads to having a lot of damage. I mean, you you, you know, I don't have to break down Lentz too much. Everyone knows what you to get. He constantly is moving forward, trying to close his distance. This works out well for him to close his distance, but he also eats so many shots in his way coming in. Um, he's a bit of an unorthodox striker, not your, not your normal style, not a great athlete. He uses a lot of stance switches. He looks to kind of use that to slide into the pocket to unload shots. He does have good kicks to the body. I'll give him that. And he obviously is a solid wrestler. This guy wrestled D1, uh, University of Minnesota, obviously one of the elite wrestling schools. He he's Well, obviously he can shoot from distance when you wrestle at that. He's more of a, a John Fitch style where he wants to grind you against the fence, weigh you out, kind of. Uh, you know, he's going to get his takedowns later in the round goes on after he's worn on you. Uh, when he takes you down, he stays glued on you, whether you're standing or against the fence. Uh, he can get some body lock takedowns too, or he just he, he what he does actually a lot, especially in his later career, is he just like a little like he'll be against pressure against Kench, just do like a little slide by something similar to we just saw Michael Kessa do a lot, just trying to get behind the hip, uh, solid top control, and just willing to just win a grimy battle that mentally breaks a lot of people. Move over to Everleft. I mean, I think this guy is so good. And the scary thing is he's only 26 years old. He might not even be in his prime yet. He's so well-rounded, technically sound on the feet and the ground, high output, quick hands, some really snap on his punches, has some beautiful sting, great head movement. Uh, He uses – what I love about his head movement is he avoids strikes but also – only avoids enough to still leave himself into range to land shots. Uh, he'll sneak in a high kick on combinations. He'll throw in a spinning attack. 
he's not just a striker though he's a good wrestler perfect timing on his reactionary double he's so good at shooting when his opponents start to open up their striking his top game might be the weakness like his top game isn't great though he is a submission threat uh, he has been taken down by lesser wrestlers. He was taken down by Enrique Barzola. I mean, who's a good wrestler? Mike Grundy, another good wrestler. But he's incredible in scrambles. He'll, like, he'll go to a Granby rolls. He just finds ways to get out of those uh, almost impossible to keep down. It's tough to take on a high-output guy like Lentz, but Evelyn's skills is light years ahead of Lentz at this point. I think Evelyn styles him on Lentz on the feet and probably in the ground too. Lentz is so in, so insanely tough, so he'll probably make it to the end of the fight. But I expect to have multiple 10-8 rounds with Evelyn just having one. Like I I expect Evelyn to be on our our bulls list. So give me Evelyn by decision and absolute blowout. I'm 100% with you on this. I not only expect Evluev to be on our bulls list, I kind of expect Lentz to be on the cut list after this one, 25 fights in the UFC or no. Uh, Lentz absolutely came to MMA as an elite wrestler. He remains a very good wrestler, and he's actually improved as a striker over the years. He's developed more weapons. He's never stopped trying to get better as a fighter, but his striking arsenal has become more confident and more diverse, unfortunately, just as the years and miles are starting to tell on him. The, the last person he really touched up well on the feet was the ghost of Gray Maynard a couple of years ago. Uh, aside from that, he, he just doesn't have the speed anymore. And I, I expect Evloev to put on a complete clinic. Watching him uh, in his last fight against Mike Grundy, Grundy was able to take him down repeatedly. Grundy was a national team wrestler for the UK, but I think I commented at the time, it was like trying to watch someone give a cat a bath. Just Evloev would not, he would not, he would never conceded the takedown. Like as soon as his butt or his shoulder blades hit the canvas, he was hitting a Gramby roll. He was like, he was just flying all over the place. It was, and it makes me think that if Lentz does try to wrestle, Evloev will exhaust him. Uh, Lentz's gas tank has definitely become more of an issue recently. He was uh, he was he was once a grinder who didn't ever seem to get tired. Now he's a grinder who does get tired. Uh, I agree that he's super tough. I could see Evloev finishing him late, just completely exhausted to 10, eight rounds in the books. And he just gets, you know, a, a mercy tap out of a scramble or throws a couple punches and Lentz just can't move enough to satisfy the referee but i'm i'm think that's the outside case i'm gonna stick with just a dominant decision showcase fight for evloev and uh as i said off the top i expect evloev to be on our bulls list i kind of expect lens to be on our cut list because this will be his third loss in a row and the one against arnold allen was a terrible fight i almost expected him to get cut off of that fight we move up to the middleweight division where Andrew Sanchez will take on Mahmoud Muradov. Sanchez, the 32-year-old American, is 12-5 and five in his mixed martial arts career. He is 5-3 and three in the UFC after joining as the winner of the Ultimate Fighter Season 23 back in 2016. He fought most recently last August, knocking out Wellington Terman with a huge punch in the first round of their meeting. 
He takes on Muradov. The 30-year-old from Uzbekistan is 24-6 and six in his mixed martial arts career. He is 2-0 and oh in the UFC, though he did not fight at all in 2020. He was scheduled to. He would have been uh, Kevin Holland's, I believe, fourth opponent of the year, but was forced to withdraw. Uh, he steps in here for Andre Munez. Odds are close. Muradov, a slight favorite at minus 140. Sanchez available around plus 120 as the underdog. Keith, who do you have in this one? Well, pre-tape study, I was feeling extremely confident. One guy, post-tape type study, uh, the line closed up from, you know, closened up for me. I'll start with Sanchez. To his credit, he has greatly improved as a striker recently. Uh, he actually looks pretty good on the feet now. He's pretty elusive. He has a style where he kind of wants to be all the way out or kind of and then suddenly leap in with an attack. He throws punches from weird angles, which is a good thing because you don't really it comes from, you know, where you didn't expect it to come. He does still have the tendency to want to brawl a little bit, which I don't think is a good thing, um, especially because he's re- received so many heavy shots over his UFC career. Uh, but to his credit, uh he hits really hard. I mean, he knocked out Wellington Terman with one punch in his last fight. He comes from a wrestling background. He's a good wrestler. He's a two-time NAIA national champion wrestler. He has some good entries. He can also push his opponent against the fence if, you know, if it's a war and just kind of grind on him a little bit and kind of rest in that position. Move over to Mur- uh, Mur- Muradoff. I apologize for these names. Uh, very athletic, extremely elusive, uses lots of movement, good footwork, uh, great head movement. I love how he uses feints well. He switches stances. He he keeps his hands a little low because he's kind of uses it to kind of have his, his opponent like swing at his face so he can counter strike. Uh, and he's very good at counter striking. Great jab. Uh, he loves his overhand right. I love that he goes to the body. He has crushing power. He'll throwing like a flying knee or even like a flying kick. Uh, one problem though is is sometimes he'll have sometimes when he's not getting hit, he kind of does a little Bobby Green kind of thing where he the, the output kind of goes down and he's like, well, if you're not hitting me, uh, I'm winning. Something that Bobby Green does, something that Jorge Masvidal used to do back in the day. Uh, but to his defense, in the Trevor Smith fight, he picked up his output a l- much much better than he did like against the Alessio DeCherico fight. Um, not a wrestler, but you know, he's been hard to take down. People have struggled to get him down. Um, and I haven't seen anything in his offensive grappling to really understand how he is in that. This fight is intriguing to me. If Sanchez would strictly rely on his wrestling, I would be very tempted to take him in an upset. However, I don't trust him to do it, especially that, now that he's a wrestler who's developed this new toy in his striking. And I've seen it so many times in the past. Wrestlers want to suddenly strike. Murdoff is a guy that is way too technical and hits way too hard to play those games. I think Sanchez plays with fire and Murdoff makes him pay for it. I think Murdoff knocks him out in the second round. Excellent. I think part of the reason that the line is as close as it is on that one is that Murdoff is stepping up on relatively short notice because otherwise the other dynamic that plays in on top of everything you kind of mentioned here is that Sanchez's gas tank is kind of a problem, and that has not appeared to be the case for Muradov. But I agree with you in the general dynamic of the fight. 
I think Sanchez is going to want to strike. He's going to try to strike. And the even though his striking has improved and he has natural gifts, just he has good hand speed just because he is that kind of athlete. Uh, Muradov is just a much niftier and more defensively sound striker. I think he's going to make Sanchez look kind of uh, amateurish in the stand-up. I expect some things where Sanchez is kind of, you know, swinging at air and uh, Muradov is coming back with counters. It, it's there for Sanchez anytime he wants to try initiating the wrestling because at the same time, that will also force him to get in the phone booth distance that Muradov doesn't want to fight at. That would be his clearest route to victory, but I don't think he'll do it, or if he does it, I don't think he'll do it until too late. Sanchez has been a pretty rugged guy. I am not going to go with the finish here, but give me Muradov in a very clear-cut decision in which he is pulling away in the third round as Sanchez gets even more tired. Next up on the UFC 257 prelims, it is the light heavyweights as Khalil Roundtree takes on Martin Procneo. Roundtree, the 30-year-old, is 8-4 with one no contest. Overall, he is 4-4 four four with one no contest in the UFC. He'll be taking on Procneo. The 32-year-old from Poland is 13-5 overall. He is 0-3 in the UFC with three first-round knockout losses. I am just going to go out on a limb here and say that this is a bit of a showcase. If you've got a guy who's lost three times by first-round knockout and you're matching up with somebody who, well, you know, first-round knockouts are, are pretty much what he does best, I'm going to say it's a bit of a showcase. Having said that, Roundtree's UFC run has been defined by inconsistency. Even as he improves, it's been inconsistency. I mean, he is much, much better than the guy who lost to Andrew Sanchez in the tough finale. He was just such a, a raw, basically unskilled athlete of a fighter at that time. He's really, really improved. At his best, he looks unbelievable. I, I mean, raise your hand if you had him to splatter Gokan Saki, one of the most decorated kickboxers ever to cross over to MMA in 90 seconds. I didn't. And then after that, he just gets splattered by Johnny Walker. Comes back from that. He takes on Eric Anders, and he beat Eric Anders so badly that I actually had to change my mind about a whole country. Because I was always of the mind that, okay, when a fighter says, I went over to Thailand for six months and I trained with, you know, Tiger Muay Thai or Phuket Top Team or, you know, AKA Phuket or whatever. Like, okay, so you went and took a vacation on the beach because Thailand is a real, really beautiful place and affordable, you know, to stay at. But nobody comes back there and their striking's actually improved. It's the weirdest thing. It's fighter vacation. Then he came back and he put on just the best striking performance of his career by like a factor of 10. One of the more improved uh, fighters over such a short span that I can remember seeing in the sport. I said, whoa. All right, this Khalil Roundtree is a contender. This guy is a, a potential top 10 fighter at light heavyweight. Goes out the next time and just gets lumped by Iwan Kutalaba in like half a round. So I don't know which uh, Khalil Roundtree is going to walk out. The problem is even the bad Khalil Roundtree 
is going to destroy Marcin Procneo. Procneo presents as a karate fighter. You know, if you can picture Lyoto Machida or Stephen Thompson kind of bouncing in and out with a bladed stance, you know, throwing sidekicks, things like that. That's what he wants to do. It just doesn't come together at a UFC level, which, hey, don't feel bad, man. You know, the single-digit UFCs were full of people that wanted to fight like that, and it just didn't work at the UFC level. It takes a Machida or a Wonderboy to do that. G- give me Khalil Roundtree by first-round knockout. He's going to catch Procneo. Procneo is incredibly hittable, you know, because if you have that karate style and it, uh, you haven't honed it to be able to work against MMA kickboxers, you're just a guy bouncing around with his chin way out there. And that's kind of what Procneo is. Khalil's going to find it first round knockout. It's not, it's easy for me to say because of the odds, but this is my lock of the night. Yeah. So when we break down these cards, there's always like one or two fights that I have to do a little bit of, I, I always watch film on everybody, but it's some that I would do just like a limited amount because just, time restraints and i try to pick and choose this is one of the fights that i did the least uh the, the least amount of film study i would say i think this one i did uh that's because roundtree is one-dimensional and Procneo is just really bad uh, i'll start with <laughs> roundtree southpaw on the feet he's so explosive so fast great crushing power got some chopping leg kicks crushing kicks to the body and liver probably his best tool has some huge power he just, you just look at him. He just looks like an incredibly strong person, uh, though he is a horrendous wrestler. If he's taken down, he really struggles to get up. I mean, even his last fight in Kuchalava stopped him, stopped him with just elbows, um, knocking him out with elbows and crushing him. Move over to Procneo. Uh, doing film study on him, I didn't see anything that he's really good at. I don't know if I see anything that he's like pretty good at. You mentioned he has a karate style. And you, but I think you kind of like insulted Stephen Thompson and Leo Machida <laughs> because, yeah, he has a karate style, but he looks like a guy who who quit while he was a white belt. Uh, um, he's <laughs> not athletic. He's slow. His quit. His, his chin is questionable. Um, he's been knocked out in his last three fights. His boxing is pretty ugly. He kind of just swings, and also doesn't have a lot of output. He switches stances, but not in the like uh, what we were just talking about, Vivian Arojo, like switch stances to uh, like attack. He looks like to me that like he switches stances because he's not comfortable in either stance. And he's still trying to find like when you sit down in like uh, a bus or a plane and your seat's uncomfortable and you keep moving around trying to find it. Like that's what I kind of feel like he does. Uh, I'll give him credit. If I do find anything, it might be his leg kicks. Like they're not bad. Though he drops his hands when he throws them. And leave him open for a counter, which Khalil Roundtree will knock his head off. He looks to clinch a lot, which might be the area to find success against Roundtree because Roundtree, you know, if that clinch could turn into a takedown, Roundtree probably won't get up. And then um, if his mom's in the audience, we can really hear him yell at his mom. Um, <laughs> if Rockneo can take Roundtree, Roundtree down, he can win. That said, I think Roundtree is too fast for him. I think Rockneo's chin is toast. Give me Roundtree also by first round knockout. We have our first women's fight of the night in the Bantamweight division as Juliana Pena takes on Sarah McMahon. 
Pena, 31 years old, 9 and 4 overall, 5 and 2 in the UFC since winning the Ultimate Fighter season 18. She'll be taking on McMahon, of course, the Olympic silver medalist in freestyle wrestling. She is 12 and 5 in her mixed martial arts career. She is 6 and 5 in the UFC. She had an unsuccessful shot at the Bantamweight title, then held by Ronda Rousey back in 2014. Uh, since then, has taken time off to have a child, as has Pena. She is 40 years old, but nonetheless, the 40-year-old mother of two is the slight favorite in this fight, sitting at minus 130, where you can get Pena just barely above even money at plus 105 or plus 110. Keith, how do you see this one playing out? This is a really tough one. Um, this is one of the ones where I don't think you make a pick and you have much confidence. Or I mean, I should only speak for myself. Maybe you will. Um, I'll start with Julianne Pena. She's been so inactive lately that it's really hard to evaluate her. I mean, she's fought two times in four years. On the feet, she's always been a pretty me- mediocre striker. She's kind of slow, kind of flat-footed. Her boxing is limited to, you know, not much variation in her striking. She kind of just throws punches to eventually close the distance. She's a grinding grappler. Um, she's looking for a body lock for a takedown. However, recently she hasn't looked that good on the ground, which has always been her strength. I mean, she was taken down multiple times by Nico Montana and was submitted by Jermaine Deronomy. And she's categorized as a submission artist, though she hasn't got a submission in seven years since she was on Tough. Uh, move over to Sarah McMahon. McMahon's 40 years old. So even if she wins, I'm not going to be like excited that she's on a two-fight winning streak and she's going to make a, a title run in, in a shallow division, which though on a two-fight winning streak, she actually wouldn't be too far from a title shot. Uh, also a mediocre striker. She fights behind a high guard, has some decent natural power. I mean, just look at her. I mean, her arms are very ripped. They're very, like, they're impressive. If you if you're into arms, they're very like they're very impressive woman. Um, but she she completely ignores kicks. Doesn't even have entries, uh, kicks. Her entries though are obviously elite. I mean, this girl was a silver medalist in the Olympics. In fantasy though, I just talked about Juliana Pena not having a submission in seven years. Sarah McMahon, they'll mention right away, silver medalist. She wrestled in the, in the Olympics seventeen years ago. Uh, she's so physically strong. If she can get a hold of her opponent, she can just take him down. She, if she doesn't get on your hips, she can get double underhooks. She looks for that inside trip, similar to what Henry Cejudo used to look for a lot. Heavy top control, her hard ground and pound. I mean, she beat up Lena Landsberg pretty good on the ground in her last fight, though her submission defense is is always been weak, kind of been the Achilles heel. She got submission losses to Caitlin Vieira and Myron Renault and back-to-back fights before that long layoff. McMahon is 40 years old, so like I said, it's going to be so hard to have confidence in her. How Pena looks does not look like the same fighter before the injury. It could be a result of the injury. It could be some motivation thing. She has a baby. She's been doing some commentating. Uh, she recently struggled on the ground, and McMahon is the best wrestler she has ever faced. Um, I'm regretting this pick, but I'm going to take McMahon to get some takedowns, and I think she's going to hold it down and win a unanimous decision. So give me the old lady uh, to get her – Massive arms raised and uh, and get victory. I have the feeling 
that I'm going to be wishing I had made the same pick as you because everything you, you put out there is absolutely on point. I think of a Pena already, and she's only 31 years old, but I think of her already as a kind of what might have been story. When she came out of the Ultimate Fighter 18, which, good gracious, was over seven years ago at this point, she was very green. And she was getting by just on sheer athleticism in a lot of cases, but she just had flashes of, of greatness. She had uh, an instinct for fighting and a level of natural athleticism that's ultra, ultra rare. Certainly it stood out from the rest of the people on, on that season of, of tough. I mean, that's the season that gave us kind of, you know, Raquel Pennington and uh, Roxanne Modafferi, you know, people with, Excellent skill sets, but, you know, not being propelled by necessarily elite level athleticism. Pena was different, but since then, she's fought something like seven times in seven years just because, first, a variety of injuries and the kind of injuries that sap a natural athlete, you know, knee injuries, things like that, then uh, took almost, I think, almost two years off to have uh, her first child I it's I have to get it through my head that Pena is not a rising prospect anymore. That what we're seeing in the cage is what we get. Like this is Juliana Pena for however long uh, she fights. McMahon, on the other hand, I think you know she's kind of slowly eroding. But her her peak as a fighter, I'm not sure it was ever like as good as Pena is now. I, I think Pena's just gonna. I'll be interested to see if McMahon can get the takedowns. I mean, presumably she should be able to be to, to get them, but if she does, uh, submission defense remains a, a liability. Uh, Pena is, she's not the kind of submission grappler that the commentary booth will try to make her out to be, but she is good at forcing scrambles. She is opportunistic. Uh, give me Pena to, to win this one. I, I'm not confident picking her to finish, but I think she'll either deny the takedown enough to touch McMahon up on the feet, or if she is taken down, we'll be able to sweep, threaten from top position, threaten with submissions, and just uh, punish McMahon uh, for wanting to wrestle. So give me Pena by decision in this one. Back to the middleweight division with a matchup between Brad Tavares and Antonio Carlos Jr., two men who did not fight at all in 2020 and worse yet, were on two-fight losing streaks before taking a year off. Tavares, the 33-year-old Hawaiian, is 17-6 and six as a professional mixed martial artist. He is 12-6 and six since joining the UFC off of The Ultimate Fighter Season 11, a season in which he, did, he was not the winner, but he is definitely the most accomplished fighter to come out of that season. He takes on Carlos Jr., the man they call Shoeface, which really isn't very nice, is 30 years old, 10 and four in his mixed martial arts career with one no contest, seven and four since joining the UFC out of uh, the third tough Brazil season. Odds are close on this one. Tavares minus 135, Antonio Carlos Jr. around plus 115. How do you feel about this one, Keith? All right, so 
I said there was two or three fights that I didn't do too much tape study just for time sense. Uh, this was one of the other ones. Uh, Brad Tavares, it's it's really hard to know where he stands at this point as he hasn't fought in over a year. He hasn't won a fight in over three years. He is well-rounded, but I wouldn't say he's great at any... Sorry, I would say he's good at everything, but not great at anything. Um, he uses a lot of feints. He really steps in his shots to generate power. Good calf kicks, good body kicks. His chin is questionable, though. His last fight, he was dropped by Edmund Shabazian. Then shortly after, he was brutally knocked out by Edmund Shabazian. Uh, that didn't give me a lot of confidence to be knocked out that bad heading into this fight. Obviously, Antonio Carlos Jr. is not a striker. He's not not really where, you know, we have to worry about your chin, but just, just the confidence overall. Uh, Carlos Jr., not a great athlete, but he's very tough. Like, I don't think he has credit. Like, he's taking some beatings fight and keeps going on. He's a mediocre striker. He keeps his chin high, doesn't move his head laterally, but mostly kind of moves it straight back. This has led to him takes many, you know, much, many shots, much damage, including having his nose broken in, I think, many fights, actually. Um, he presses forward, though, so I give him credit, and he presses forward to get his opponent towards the fence where he can shoot. He's got good entries. Uh, and he's while he's not the like most explosive guy, he's relentless to get that takedown. If he gets your leg, he's so strong, he can simply just lift it in the air and, and take you down. Or if he gets close enough, he'll just drag you down. He's willing to like go to his back and then eventually sweep you over. Uh, he's a phenomenal grappler on the canvas, has some slick back takes. He can get a submission for pretty much any position. Of his 10 wins, eight have come by, by submission. Tavares is the more well-rounded fighter. But it's really hard to know what you get with him at this point. I think Carlos Jr. lands a bunch of takedowns. I think he controls him for 15 minutes. And I think he gets a unanimous decision. So this is my upset special, as I think I think Carlos Jr. should definitely be the favorite in this fight. Excellent. I see the same basic matchup that you do. I am leaning in the opposite direction just because... Again, as you put it very well, it's it doesn't it we don't know what kind of Brad Tavares we're getting in in this fight. He's been off for a year. Last fight before that was a bad knockout to at the time a sizzling hot prospect. His last fight before that, he got styled on by Israel Adesanya in one of really Adesanya's coming out moments. He's not a bad fighter based off of those two losses but with the knockout and then the year off and then him moving just further into his 30s he's now 33 in a fighter who has definitely relied some on his uh, athleticism to kind of make his game go it all does give me worry against uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. however the people that have, have really taken it to Brad Tavares, it's usually been uh, powerful and more sound strikers that are able to take advantage of his tendency to brawl and his sometimes porous defense. Antonio Carlos Jr. definitely does not have that route to victory. Beyond that, if, if Antonio Carlos Jr. is able to get his hands on Tavares and use his 
trips and throws or his trip that's half a trip, half a guard pull where he just kind of grabs you and like you both go tumbling to the ground and he just trusts himself to come out on top. If he makes that work on Tavares, you're dead right. And he might even finish him down there. But I'm going to say Tavares is actually able to keep this on the feet. And on the feet, Antonio Carlos Jr. is just not going to have anything to offer even if Tavares is in decline. So uh, give me Tavares by decision. Next up on the prelims, it is lightweights as Armin Sarukian and Nazrat Hakparast are set to lock him up in what looks currently to be the final prelim on the card. Hakparast, the 25-year-old fighter from Afghanistan, is 12-3 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 5-2 in the UFC. Having fought twice last year, he won a unanimous decision over Alex Munoz last August and on January 18th was steamrolled by Drew Dober at UFC 246. He's taking on Sarukian. The 24-year-old Russian is 15-2 overall. He is 2-1 in the UFC, having fought most recently last July and won a unanimous decision over uh, Davi Hamosh. This is one of those fights, and kind of like Amir Albazi versus Jalga Shumagulov, where it's between two good prospects, just one is a little more gooder than the other. Uh, Armin Sarukian, I, I, I'm surprised we're not talking more about him, but it's probably because he only fought once last year. He's only fought three times since joining the UFC almost three years ago. But he is one of the best prospects in the lightweight division since coming over. I mean, he's he lost to Islam Makachev, but Makachev, uh, there are some people out there who think he's the best guy in the division right now and just everybody's ducking him and he's, he's the uncrowned champion. I mean, that's how impressive Makachev has looked when he's been out there. I don't think there's any shame in that loss. And beyond that, I mean, he handled... Olivier Aubameyang and beat Demi Hamosh. He's a great wrestler. Uh, n- a better striker than uh, than he. I-, I think he's a better striker than than he presented at as, in the fight against Makachev. But his game against Hakparast is going to be to try to get it to the ground because Hakparast likes to strike. I think he's a really solid. He, you know, he's a really solid uh, prospect as, as well. He did lose uh, to Drew Dober, but we've found out that Drew Dober is kind of a late bloomer and oncoming uh, contender. This is a bad style matchup for him. I, I do think Sarukian is going to be able to get to him and uh, take him down. He might get. I, he's probably going to eat a few punches early on. Hakparas, I you know, I, I like his, his hand speed. I like uh, the combinations he throws. But by the end of the first round, this thing's going to be on the canvas. And I think it's going to spend the remainder of the time there. Give me Sarukian. It would be easy to say, give me Sarukian by a lopsided decision. But give me Sarukian by third round submission. I think he's going to wear down Hakparas enough that by the the third round he's just able to take him down maybe soften him up with some punches and finish it with a rear naked choke Saruki by third round submission man 
So this might be the best fight on the prelims. Probably is the best fight in the prelims. And I think you can make an argument that this should be the fight third from the top. Like, I'm that excited about this fight. Seems like you're pretty excited about this fight. You got two extremely young guys with high upside, with both guys look like future ranked fighters. Um, I'll start with Hawk Cross. Southpaw, counter striker, uses feints really well to set up his attacks. Fast hands, he's explosive, has a really good whip on his punches. Can be a little wild, but he's wild because he's throwing hard. He's got good power. He can knock you out if a, if a sh- shot lands. He closes a distance with this, sometimes with this, like, leaping uppercut, similar to what Junior Dos Santos does. That is a huge power shot if it lands, but also is obviously a huge risk, as we've seen, you know, Chuck Liddell get knocked out by Rashad Evans for a similar punch. He's got good takedown defense, but uh, but it isn't perfect. Marcin Hell took him down three times in his UFC debut. That was a long time ago. Alex Munoz, a very good wrestler, took him down only once in their fight, and he tried many times. But if he is taken down, neither one of those guys were able to hold him down for long. Uh, move over to Sarukian. This guy has been, you know, is, is impressed by him with Hot I'm more impressed with Sarukian based on who he's faced. I mean, this guy's been thrown to the wolves. His three UFC fights are Islam Makashev's, Olivia Auburn Mercier, and uh, Davi Hamos. Like, that's really good competition. Uh, he's very athletic. He's so fluid, fast hands. He stays really tight. Uh, he's Similar to what I talked about with um, Evilev, he's really good at slipping punches, but not completely pulling all the way, but slipping and keeping himself in range so he can unload his own shot. Uh, he tacks the body, which a lot of young guys doesn't do. I would say he has plus power, a not one-punch knockout guy, but he's only 24 years old, so that's something that could develop. Uh, calf kicks are something he looks for. He'll throw out some spinning attacks. He's also an incredible wrestler. Great timing, quick entries, great reactionary double. Gets in there, cuts the corner right away. Uh, great in scrambles. Uh, if you're in the clinch, he looks for foot trips. He just—I can't talk enough about how good a grappler. He's hard to submit. I mean, he his last match was against Davi Hamos, an Abu Dhabi champion, and he out grappled Davi Hamos. This fight is so good. Both guys have a great future in front of them. I kind of hate that they're facing each other. I don't really want to see either guy lose yet at this point in their career. Uh, that said, one I just think Sarukian has faced a better competition, and he's more well-rounded. So I'm also taking Sarukian. Uh, I think he's going to avoid some big shots from. I mean, he's going to have to avoid big shots from from Hakares, But if he can, I think he can blend his striking, his grappling uh, together well. I'll take Sarukian by unanimous decision. That brings us to the main card of UFC 257. And we kick things off with a strawweight matchup between Marina Rodriguez and Amanda Hibas. Rodriguez, 33 years old. She is 12-1-2 in her mixed martial arts career. She is 2-1-2 in the UFC since joining through the first Brazilian season of Dana White's Contender Series back in 2018. She fought most recently last July, losing a split decision to Carla Esparza. She's taking on Hibas, the 27-year-old Brazilian, is 10-1 as a professional. She is a perfect 4-0 since joining the UFC. She fought twice in 2020, uh, submitting Paige Van Zant with an armbar in just over two minutes and winning a unanimous decision over Randa Marcos back in March. 
Odds are pretty wide on this one. Uh, he was sitting out as a minus 300 favorite. Rodriguez available around plus 255 as the underdog. Uh, this is yet another fight on this card between two up-and-coming fighters that I think are both really promising, but one is more promising, and on top of that is favored by the stylistic matchup. I think part of the reason that the odds are like they are is that I know MMA math doesn't compute a lot of the time, but seeing how Random Marcos was able to take down Marina Rodriguez repeatedly, even though their fight ended in a draw, versus what Hibas did to Random Marcos, it's it's hard not to see Hibas just uh, walking, you know, through some combinations and probably some leg and body kicks from Rodriguez hauling her to the ground and just mauling her down there. I will leave the tighter uh, X's and O's breakdown of these two to you, but uh, give me uh, Hebus by first round submission in a fight that will continue to send her hype through the roof and will continue to unfairly uh, drop uh, Rodriguez's star because Rodriguez is 2-1-2 and in the UFC and just has not had a single easy fight. She's fought, you know, tough competition all the way out. And even though she lost last time, basically failed upwards into maybe the hardest fight of her run so far. So I think they both have a future in this division, but Hebus's future is now. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. She might have got a harder matchup after a loss. That said, I don't think the line should be this big just based on the the skill level of Rodriguez on the feet. This is a this is a fantastic matchup. Rodriguez is really big for the weight class. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. She's just a big woman. Uh, it's kind of the tale of two fighters with her. Like she's a really good striker and a really bad grappler. On the feet, she's long and lengthy, fast hands, pressure striker, very aggressive. Some good snack snap on her punches. She attacks with combination, hard, long kicks. She goes to the body with step-in knees. If it's in the clinch, she can do a lot of damage there. Whether it's dirty boxing, you know, she lands punches in there. She's good at posting and, like, creating space and then throwing a slicing elbow, blooding up. If she's got the plum clinch, she's looking for knees up the middle based on her height. Really works out good for her. That said, she's a really bad wrestler. And her BJJ is pretty much non-existent. Uh, she had, in fairness, like her two last fights, she got a draw against Calvillo and a loss to Esparza. She faced, you know, two of the better grapplers in the division. Uh, but, like, Calvillo mounted her at one point fairly easily. And uh, she just struggled to get off with Calvillo and Esparza on top of her. That said, if she if a scramble pursues and she finds herself on top, she will do some serious damage with her elbows. Move over to Hibas. This girl's only 27 years old. I know I sound like a broke record on this card because it seems like a lot of people are just entering their prime, which just seems like a lot of showcases for young talent. Uh, it's really scary that she might, like, we might not see the best version of her yet because she's really, really good. I mean, in her, I think her last fight was Rena Marcos. She got a 30 25 scorecard against Rena Marcos. Say what you want about Rena Marcos. She's, like, she's not the best fighter in the division. She's still a tough out for anybody. And this girl beat the brakes off her. She's so athletic. She's well rounded. She's a high output striker. She's very good on her feet. Got great fluidity, fluidity in her strikes. She's fast. She's accurate. Uh, 
she does well at keeping her opponent at the end of her punches. She'll throw in some flash for the fans, a spinning back kick. She has a judo background, so if you get in close, she'll hit throw you like she did uh, Paige Van Zandt. She also gets some good body lock takedowns if she's on top. Heavy top pressure, constantly looking to work to a better position. She is a submission threat. Uh, she's great off her back. You put her on her back, she can submit you off your back. She got four submission wins in her career. And she's on top. She's got violent ground and pound. I am concerned on the line being a little stretched out because one of how good of a striker Rodriguez is, but also the size difference. Like Rodriguez is much bigger than Hibas. Uh, that says, I think Hibas will have such an advantage on the ground as you were talking about. If she, I can see her taking Rodriguez down. If she's smart, she'll take Rodriguez down over and over again. And uh, unlike Calvillo, I think she'll be able to finish her. Uh, I'm sorry, I should say unlike Calvillo and Esparza, I think she's going to get the finish. So I think she submits her in the second round. There you go. Two picks for Amanda Hibas by submission. The UFC 257 main card powers on. And next up, we have the heavy construction equipment. A lightweight matchup between Matt Frivola and Atman Azaitar. Frivola, the 30-year-old from New York that goes by Steamrolla, is 8-1-1 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 2-1-1 since joining the UFC off of the very first season of Dana White's Contender Series back in 2017. He was out for all of 2020, but fought most recently in October of 2019, winning a split decision over Luis Pena way back at UFC Fight Night, Young Jacek versus Watterson. Azatar, the man who calls himself the bulldozer, is an undefeated prospect. The 30-year-old Moroccan German is 13-0. He is 2-0 in the UFC. He beat uh, Kamal Worthy with first-round punches back at UFC Fight Night Watterson versus Hill last September. Despite Azaitar being one of the UFC's relatively few undefeated prospects, the line very close here. Azatar is a minus-155 favorite, while Frivola is available around plus-135 as the underdog. Keith, not to sound like a five-year-old, but if a steamroller fought a bulldozer, who would win? <laughs> That's, uh, <laughs> this seems like totally something like a matchup Joe Silva would make just for that reason. Yep. And uh, I can't wait to put John Anik to make that comment. Uh, if he doesn't, shame on him, and Ben Duffy should take his job. Uh, th- this is going to be an action packed fight that's like one of the things i can pretty much guarantee in this fight we'll start with a steamroller uh matt frivola he's very aggressive uh that also makes him very hittable he's he's wild he throws like just tons of looping hard power hooks kind of telegraphs everything because he's he wants to brawl he invites to brawl uh, he does have a wrestling background he's got some good entries he sometimes can shoot from too far away uh, gets him in trouble there, but he's good at winning scrambles. That's, that's kind of what he's just initiating as long as he can cause a scramble. Uh, he, I also like that he looks to land strikes in mid-scramble or like on a break of a scramble. He's got really good cardio. I'll give him that. You can hurt him, and he's just going to keep coming for the whole 50 minutes. It's going to be a, like he's going to make it a nonstop action-packed fight. He also has tons of heart. 
like he's been hurt in many fights. I think about the Lando Venata hurt him, Jalen Turner hurt him, Luis Pena hurt him. He just kept coming. He has three submission wins and almost submitted Jalen Turner several times with a guillotine in his fight. So that's something to keep your eye on. Move over to the bulldozer, uh, Azeda. Uh, fast hands, very explosive, does well to draw out feints for his counter strikes. Great timing on his counter strikes. His overhand right is deadly. Great power. He has 10 knockouts in his career. Throws so many power shots. Like he's one of those guys he wants to get in tight and just throw hooks, uppercuts. That's kind of what he's looking for. Kind of stays compact with that. He can be a little wild, which it would be fun if him and and uh, the steamroller are throwing bombs towards each other. But I can see Steamroller trying to wrestle him, and I haven't seen too much in the UFC from Azeda's wrestling, but I did some of the regional stuff, and he can wrestle. Um, take it with a grain of salt because it's the regional scene, so I don't know how well the competition is. I love Frivola's style as far as entertainment. However, he's too hittable for my liking to kind of rise through the rankings. And Azeda hits way too hard. I think Azeda puts him out, out cold, First round, give me a Zeta by first round knockout. I, looking at Frivola's last couple of fights, and you described his style perfectly, but the last couple of fights, you know, he he won decisions over two of the tallest, lankiest, leggiest lightweights in the UFC. And in both cases, uh, he was the better wrestler, even though Luis Pena is a very good wrestler. Uh, uh, Frivola turned out to be the more effective wrestler and turned out to be the less tired guy in the cage than two people who, by all appearances, probably cut a ton of weight. That's not what this fight is going to look like. Again, MMA math, never infallible, but I'm going all the way back to the Marco Polo Reyes fight. Marco Polo Reyes left the UFC on a one and four run. The one win was him just completely splitting Frivola's wig. I mean, he made Marco Polo Reyes look like, uh, you know, first 10 fights, Mike Tyson. Uh, and, and Frivola, he's made incremental improvements, but he is still largely the same fighter. He is hyper aggressive on the feet, bent on landing his own offense, even at the expense of taking a few on the chin. If he cannot take one on the chin from Marco Polo Reyes. I want to say that Reyes' first punch like knocked Frivola's mouthpiece like halfway across the octagon. If he can't take that from him, he's not going to be able to take it from Otman Izatar, who just is a much better fighter, much better striker, probably a, a harder hitter, e even just you know in a vacuum. If Frivola fights to his absolute best advantage, you know, goes for the wrestling, keeps his striking button down, I think he would probably lose a decision. I don't think he's going to fight to his best advantage. I think he is probably at least as interested in a fight of the night bonus as he is in his own win bonus. I'm I'm tempted to say uh, Atman Azatar by first round knockout because that's what I was going to say. But just to keep things spicy, let's say it gets to the to the second round. You know, Frivola loses the first round, probably gets his head put on a swivel a couple of times. Second round, maybe he does come out and try to wrestle, but can't get Azatar down and does get TKO'd in the second round. We go now to the 
flyweight division, women's flyweight, where Jessica I and Joanne Calderwood are set to scrap. I, the 34-year-old, is 15 and 8 with one no contest as a professional. She is 5 and 7 with one no contest in the UFC. She is taking on Calderwood, the 34-year-old Scott by way of Las Vegas is 14 and 5 in her mixed martial arts career. She is 6 and 5 since joining the UFC off of the 20th season of The Ultimate Fighter, uh, during which tournament she was uh, eliminated by Rose Namajunas. Odds very close on this one. Calderwood sitting at minus 120. I is available at even money right now, uh, plus 100. Keith, how do you see this one playing out? Well, I'm not really excited about this fight. It's I'm kind of done with both of them, and I'm not high on either one of them. I kind of wish this fight was buried on the prelims, not on the main card. I think, uh, like, the Hawk Boss fight should be higher than this one. Uh, I'll start with I. She's not a great athlete. She's kind of slow, flat-footed. She does have good output. Like, that's how she wins, just from volume. Uh, though she lacks power, she's a counter-striker. Um, with her power shots, she works behind a jab. I'll give her credit. She stays tight defensively with a high guard, though I, I think I found a big weakness of her is that she she reaches a little bit, and when she reaches with her right arm, it leaves her open to a high kick. Cynthia Calvillo was finding some success with a high kick, and obviously Valentina Shevchenko found a lot of success with a high kick. Uh, she also doesn't like to be pressured. She wants to be the bold. Uh, Cynthia Calvillo also uh, made her fight off her back foot when she had success. She does have good leg kicks. Uh, she has some good success against Vivian Arajo, just kicking out the inside of her leg. Decent entries. She can either you know get it in your hips and take you down, or she's good at she'll good at catching a kick. Pretty solid top control, but though. When I did some tape study on her, I was actually surprised that she wasn't as good as on the ground as I initially thought she was. She isn't a submission threat at all. Like if she takes you down, she's pretty much just gonna hold you down. Not much ground and pound. She also struggles to stop takedowns. Uh, I mean, Cynthia Calvillo kept taking her down. Another thing that she struggled with Cynthia Calvillo was getting up from bottom. Uh, move over to Joanne Calderwood, different style striker. She's more of a Muay Thai striker, also a good volume striker, also works behind a solid jab but also lacks power. She throws a lot of kicks, uh, either inside leg kicks, outside leg kicks, teep kicks. She'll throw the step and knee, which I like. Uh, she also look for some slicing elbows. She keep, But as good as she is as a Muay Thai striker, she has a lot of def- defensive flaws. She keeps her chin like really high in the air, pulls her, which very similar to people who keep their chin high in the air, is the tendency to pull the head straight back to avoid shots. Uh, she will catch a kick to get the fight to the ground, but she is not a, a good offensive or defense wrestler. She's actually probably a pretty weak defensive wrestler. I mean, she was taken down three times by Andrew Lee, who I wouldn't call a great wrestler. Like, she can wrestle, but she's not a great wrestler. Uh, she also struggles in submission defense. I mean, she was submitted by Jennifer Maya. She was submitted by Jessica Andrade. She was submitted by Marna Morose. If you even go on tough, she was submitted by Rose Namajunas. I expect this fight to be razor close. That said, I'm going to go with Jessica I. Why? 
I have no clue why I'm taking Jessica. I flipped the coin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I just think she can initiate some grappling, have some top control, and like it seemed like uh, she always wins fights that where the other girl seems a little more talented than her. Um, so give me I by split decision. I won't belabor any of it. I'm, I'm there with you. Uh, give me I. I might be five and seven in the UFC, but other than Valentina Shevchenko, nobody's looked great beating her. Uh, Jay Petri, Sherdog associate editor, called her a nullifier of what her opponents do well. I think that's a, a pretty good description of it. You know, the people, a lot of the people who've beaten her have done it by doing things other than what they normally uh, do well. Calderwood's one obvious way to win this is getting the better of a high volume kickboxing match at her preferred distance. I think I is smart enough not to give that to her. I don't know whether it goes to the ground or uh, I just mashes her in the clinch and dares her to live up to her Dr. Neville uh, nickname. But uh, give me I by decision in not the fight of the night. With that, we come to our co-main event of the evening as Dan Hooker welcomes Michael Chandler to the UFC. Hooker, the 30-year-old New Zealander, is 20 and 9 as a professional mixed martial artist. He is 10 and 5 in the UFC. He fought most recently last June, uh, losing a unanimous decision in a very competitive, very exciting fight to Dustin Poirier, who is, of course, uh, one half of our main event. Before that, he fought once again a fantastic, entertaining, and very competitive fight, winning a split decision over Paul Felder last February. He's taking on Chandler. The 34-year-old from Missouri is, of course, Bellator MMA's probably greatest homegrown star and one of its most dominant champions uh, in its history. He is 21-5 and five in his mixed martial arts career. He fought once last year, knocking out former UFC lightweight champion Benson Henderson at Bellator 243. Hooker is the slight favorite to spoil the long-awaited debut of Chandler. He is minus 125. You can get Chandler at plus 105 currently. Keith? I'm not even going to ask you who you're picking, but if Michael Chandler wins tonight, how close do you think he is to a UFC lightweight title shot? Uh, I think it depends on how. I mean, if he starches Daniel Hooker, you know, as we've seen Michael Chandler do, he's got, you know, one of his big things is his punching power. If he could starch Daniel Hooker, which Dustin Poirier couldn't do, uh, which, you know, the guy who's fighting in the main event. If he does that, yeah, I think he could be next in line. They could do a Chandler versus the winner of the main event. I think that would be a very exciting matchup. It seems like the UFC is making a push for him. I mean, he weighed in during Habib Gaethje fight. Like he was a standby. So that he's definitely on the short list. I mean, they could have had other guys weigh in. Um, so yeah, I mean, if he wins a snoozing, you know, he goes for a lot of takedowns, holds a guy down like he did in, like, the first Benson Henderson fight. Like, no, I don't think he'll be the next one. But a lot of the top lightweights, you know, taking out Habib have kind of already had their shot. 
So he is the fresh face who hasn't got the shot. So, yeah, I think he's very close. Uh, champions in this weight division, you know, or former champions coming from other promotions, you've got a whole spectrum of how they can do. You know, Eddie Alvarez had some mixed results, but those mixed results included winning the UFC lightweight title, however briefly he may, he may have held it. Uh, Justin Gaethje, obviously, has continued to mint himself as one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest lightweights uh, of this era. Then, you know, you have someone like Will Brooks, who I think washed out of the UFC in, in three fights. Along that spectrum, what do you think Chandler's, like, his floor is? Like, his ceiling apparently is, you know, title shot in his next fight. What's what's the floor, do you think? Uh, I, I don't think it would be Will Brooks. He's got way more of the experience than Will Brooks had. Um, just have more confidence. I mean, even though Will Brooks had two wins on Michael Chandler in really good matchups, uh, Michael Chandler just he seemed like he's had more big fight experience. Uh, always a little more well rounded than Will Brooks. Better team than Will Brooks. Like there's a lot of factors, but he's also lightweight in one of the best divisions. Obviously stacked. And he's also up there in age. I mean, he's not a young guy. I, I don't have his age. Would would you 30, say his age? He's thirty four. He has twenty six fights. And 26 fights fights with some wars. I mean, you think about his two fights against Eddie Alvarez are on two of the greatest fights. His fights against Will Brooks are good fights. He got knocked out by Pitbull. I mean, he's got a lot of of wear and tear on it. So I actually think he's got a very small window to be the champion. It's like in the next like two years. And after that, he's probably falling off anyways. So could it happen a little sooner than people expect? Absolutely. Like I wouldn't be shocked, which is why he's really put himself in a really tough situation. If he succeeds, then he can become a legend, uh, legacy. But if he falls, a lot of the stuff he did at Bellator, people are going to discount. They're going to say, oh, you fought lower-level competition. Though we've seen, like you mentioned, we've seen Eddie Alvarez win the title. We see Volkov, one or two wins away from championship. You know, so I, I think it would be a shame if people don't view Michael Chandler rightly if he, if he fails. But it, that's just the nature of the beast. All right. What would, you, having, what would you what would you say? Sorry, what would you say on that? I would say his floor is just his floor might be Alvarez without the title win. Because if not for that, you know, all timer of a knockout on RDA, Alvarez is an exciting action fighter who spends six or eight fights in the UFC, picks up a bunch of bonuses, and then he's out on a couple of losses. You yeah. Know, like n- no win is a fluke. But if Alvarez and RDA fight 10 times, it, it doesn't look like that more than once. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, like, I, I, I'm very excited for Chandler to be here. I never thought it was going to happen. His last contract was up about two years ago. And I think I, I wrote an op-ed about it. You know, he was 32 at the time, just saying, it's a shame. Because in my opinion, in my heart of hearts, I think he was one of the top five uh, lightweights of his era, I think he would have competed very well with the corresponding UFC champions of the time that he was in the champion Bellator, and we're never going to get to see it. We are yeah. getting to see it, and it's a little overdue, but it's not like Vanderlei versus Chuck levels of, yeah. oh man, like throw, throw this out with the garbage sure. that went bad five years ago, you know? Yeah, but I have, I just have a feeling that's what we might get. 
and and look how Vanderlei is judged. I mean, he, mm-hmm. at one time he was considered a no-brainer top ten fighter ever, maybe top five fighter. In now he's barely breaking in people's top twenty. Yeah. I I hope for the sake of legacy that he wins some fights over good fighters here in the UFC because it, it's interesting. You know, Chandler is what he's like three and one against you know, former or future UFC champions like Henderson, yeah. Henderson, Alvarez, Alvarez. But and, that's... And you could make an argument he should have won that second Alvarez fight. Right. But he, he could be like 4-0 against f- former or future UFC champions. But inevitably, that's used to... Indi- like, it, it's always... Well, Hen- Henderson was washed up. Alvarez, you know, was always beatable. And he... Like, they always dismiss it, but then at the same time, when people talk about Fedor, they talk about how he did against uh, former and future UFC champions to indicate that he was the best heavyweight in the world all along. Yeah, he beat Tim Sylvia, and, like, a year later, he was getting one punch knocked up by Ray Mercer. Right. Yeah, like, he beat Tim Sylvia, he beat Andre Arlovsky, you know, and they use that as, like, to to make the case that he was the greatest heavyweight uh, of all time, even though he never fought in the UFC. I just think the double standard is kind of funny. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some guys in Bellator just will, no matter what, they'll never get any credit. Like you see, you got like Pitbull. I think he's a legendary guy, and it's just one of these guys. He just, unfortunately for him, he's big fish in small pond. Even though I don't think that's true. Yeah. So it's going to be. All right. With uh, the background set, how do you see this fight actually playing out? Well, it's funny that you asked me this because. I think this might be my favorite fight on the card uh, from an X and O sense. It is so hard. I flip-flopped on on who's going to win this one. I'll start with Michael Chandler because we already talked about him. Uh, from the X and O's, uh, first thing that jumps out to me is the high guard. He keeps his hand, he keeps his hands t- by his face, especially his right hand uh, glued to his face. He does reach a little with his left hand, which leaves him open to the counter overhand right, which is exactly what Pitbull knocked him out with. Uh, We've only seen him fight some lower-level guys since then, so we don't know if he fixed that. Uh, he's also pretty hittable for an elite fighter. I mean, we we already talked about all the wars he's been in. He does really good to dart in and out of range, and he throws tight, really tight punches. Uh, he works the body well. That's something that sets up his power shots. He understands that aspect of it. Uh, he has knockout power in either hand, which is a huge thing. He doesn't check light kicks. I mean, we saw that in the Brett Primus fight, which is... You know, Dustin Poirier kicks the legs. <laughs> Justin Gaethje kicks the legs. Connor, to his credit, will kick the legs. I mean, I know Edson's down at featherweight. There's a lot of guys in this division to attack his legs, and if he doesn't fix that. That's to be a major problem. Uh, he is a wrestler that falls in love with his hands a little bit too much, which is too bad because while that's exciting, he's also a great wrestler, an elite wrestler, great entries, extremely strong. Uh, picks guys right up in the air. Um, I think about like the way he was tossing around Benson Henderson in their first fight. I mean, suplexed Benson Henderson. Um, his output also for a guy who's fought championship fight, his output will wane deep into fights, but it's usually like the fourth or fifth round. So right now he's not at that area where that might matter. And But at his age, we just talked about, it's something that the, I don't expect that to improve. I expect to get worse, especially with the damage he's taking, especially with the style. Move over to Dan Hooker. The thing, the first thing I think of Dan Hooker, I think the first thing everyone thinks of Dan Hooker is how big of a lightweight he is, which is insane considering he used to be a featherweight. Um, he's got a four-inch height advantage on Michael Chandler. He has a six-and-a-half-inch reach advantage. That's very significant. He's accurate. He uses movement really well. 
uh, in the fel- uh, the Paul Felder fight, I saw he was like, caught, he was getting Paul Felder to chase him and pulling him into his punches. It was really good, something he might have some success against Michael Chandler based on his aggressive style. Uh, he keeps his distance really well, especially with his check left cook. He keeps his distance well with his uh, check in knees. He just um, he's can also strike while backing up, which is really impressive to keep his distance. He understands that's such a big part of his game. Um, good pop in his strikes. I wouldn't say like a huge hitter, not a crushing power, but all he has to do is look at his last two opponents, Paul Felder and Dustin Poirier's face after their fight, and you realize like, well, these strikes do some damage, and they add up. He's more cumulative than big power. Uh, he has taken a lot of damages in his own fights. Uh, his last two fights were not only five-round fights, they were five-round wars. Uh, also go back to that Edson Barbosa, one of the you know worst beatings I've seen in recent history. Uh, though he does have a great chin, uh, Dustin Poirier is known for how hard he hits, and he was walking through some punches. Good calf kicks. He beat up Ally Quinta, made Ally Quinta actually forced to go to Southpaw at one point because of how much damage he was doing. And that was only a three-round fight. But on the flip side, because he's at such a long leg, he's open to leg kicks. All you got to do is go back to the Edson Barbosa fight. We know what happened there. Uh, he will go for a takedown from a clinch. Um, he also does what we were talking about with Kiesa. Like he'll look for like just a slide by, get behind his hip, where you can kind of throw the legs in. Um, we'll catch a kick to get a takedown. If he gets you back and you put your legs in, he's got those long legs. He can go right to a body triangle. Like It's hard to get them out. Um, he defends, he doesn't really sprawl. He more just spreads his legs out and he actually wants you to feel like you're in on his legs a little bit because he's going to damage you with elbows. And then he just feels comfortable. Kind of like that Matt Brown, uh, sorry, you know, Matt Brown is a good point. I was thinking about Travis Brown, the elbows, the, like that's the big thing in Dan Hooker's game, which would be very successful against Michael Chandler. If Michael Chandler can't get him up off his feet, which is another thing about being Hall. It's hard to get him off their feet. Uh, though he was taken down by Poirier late in their bout, and Poirier's not really known for like being an elite wrestler. As you can tell by the way I broke these guys down, this is such a hard fight to pick. I flip-flopped. Chandler's getting thrown right to the wolves. Hook is going to want to use his length. He's going to want to either be all the way out striking or all the way in the clinch where he's landing elbows and stuff. Chandler's going to want to be in that mid-range. He's going to be in the pocket, the random shots, or he's going to want to be in deep on the legs. I'm going to take Chandler just because he has the power to end it. I think his, but I think his even more than his power is his wrestling. His wrestling matters. If if he's not going for takedowns, this should be an easy win for Hooker. Um, if he ignores his wrestling and just concentrates his hands, it'd be a massive, massive mistake. I think he's going to want to make an impressive showing. But I also think he's going to want to win, and he knows that wrestling is such a big aspect of the game. So I expect him to go from takedowns. I think this fight's going to be super close. I'm going to go Chandler. I'm going to say he wins by split decision. And I'm putting this down as my fight of the night, as this is going to be an absolute war. So give me Michael Chandler to win his UFC debut. Awesome. I I, I, I think we're I think we're in for a... Uh, for a fight that goes to the the judges either way. Uh, Chandler has excellent punching power. Obviously, that's been one of his hallmarks for a long time, and that is one of the things that really has not declined even as he's, you know, lost his top gear in a lot of his other, like, kind of categories. But uh, Hooker has a 
Hooker's got a, a great chin on him. Like, he's just a hard guy to hurt, especially by hitting him in the head, which is kind of Chandler's preferred method. You know, Chandler, he, Chandler's a very good boxer, but if he if he gets to choose, he's a headhunter. On the, on the flip side, Chandler's chin has definitely declined a bit, but even so, I don't think of Hooker as a knockout threat on Chandler. You know, maybe in a five-round war of attrition, it might be different. The fact that this is three rather than five rounds makes a big difference. If it were five rounds, I'd actually lean towards Hooker even more heavily. Even though Chandler has more overall experience in five-round fights, Hooker has more recent experience in five-round yeah, fights. And, But nonetheless, I am leading Hooker in this one. Give me Hooker in also. I think this will be the fight of the night. I mean, they'd give it to the main event if they could. They'd find a way to give Connor another 50000 bucks. But spoilers, I don't think that one's going to get a chance to be fight of the night. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, give me Hooker by decision in your fight of the night. Chandler might try uh, to wrestle. He might even have some success. But between Chandler's wanting to bang and Hooker's sneaky good takedown defense, this fight mostly takes place on the feet. And with that, we arrive at the main event in the lightweight division. Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier, rematching an initial meeting that took place at featherweight over seven years ago. McGregor, the 32-year-old Irishman, is 22 and 4 as a professional mixed martial artist. He is 10 and 2 in the UFC. It has been or it will have been just over a year since his last appearance in the octagon when he came back from over a year away from the sport and blew away Donald Cerrone with a head kick, punches and a shoulder strike against the fence in just 40 seconds. He takes on Poirier the 32-year-old fighting pride of Lafayette, Louisiana, is 26-6 and six with one no contest as a professional mixed martial artist. He is 18-5 with one no contest since joining the UFC. He fought most recently last June, winning a unanimous decision over Dan Hooker in the main event of UFC on ESPN 12. His last fight before that, of course, a loss to undisputed lightweight champion Khabib Nurmagomedov back at UFC 242 in September of 2019. Keith, as of right now, late Wednesday evening when we record, there is no belt on the line in this fight. Do you think the winner of this fight will end up with a UFC belt around his waist before his next fight, either by them announcing that this is going to be for a belt in the middle of the broadcast Sunday or by them stripping Khabib and giving one of these guys the belt? No, I think the winner of this will be fighting for a vacant title or fighting Khabib next. I got to say, I'm surprised that they didn't at least make this for an interim title and try to make that just a little bit more of the hook to try to get Khabib to take one more fight. I'm, I'm surprised they didn't do it because normally they hand out interim titles in this promotion like Oprah hands out books, 
You know, everybody check under your seat. There's an interim title there. So yeah. I, I'm surprised they haven't done it. My my only issue is the two guys. He's already mauled both of them. So yep. and maybe somebody Poirier else. Had a, Poirier had an interim title at the time, didn't he? He did. Yeah. When they first announced this fight, this rematch, my initial thought was that I favored Poirier. He had been more busy since their first fight. He's made improvements since their first fight. Knowing that it was going to take place at lightweight, I think both of them are better lightweights than they are featherweights, but I think the difference is even more marked for uh, for Dustin Poirier than it is for Conor McGregor. All those things, just, you know, immediate gut reaction, oh man, I think Poirier is going to win this. That was until I started watching tape. I... I mean, I watched all of both of their fights since their first fight. Poirier has made improvements in so many areas. And again, physically, he's just, uh, he's a better lightweight than he is a featherweight. He's more comfortable. His gas tank is better. His chin is better. He's one of those guys that his power is carried over just fine. Uh, he's just, he's he's a better fighter. He's a, a better defensive wrestler. I. Because I think because his gas tank is better, he is able to fight at the pace he wants for longer. Lots of things to love about this kind of second act of Dustin Poirier's career at lightweight. Having said that, he remains hittable. And while he's an incredibly tough guy, just one of the grittiest blood and guts fighters, his chin is not impregnable. He beat Dan Hooker, but Hooker hit him a lot. And while he never rocked him to the point where I thought, oh, man, this thing's going to be over. Poirier might get finished. Like, he he dinged him up pretty good a couple of times. He he definitely, you know, had made Poirier think with, with some of his strikes. And that's Hooker, who's not – he's not a lead-fisted striker. That's a problem against Conor McGregor. And that's why this remains just – a really, really dreadful style matchup for Poirier. How have people really beaten Conor McGregor since he's been McGregor? I mean, Khabib Nurmagomedov closed the distance, threw him on the ground, beat him up, and then, like, cranked his face. But that's not, that's not a repeatable game plan for the rest of the world. If if that were easy to do, other people would have done it, but really nobody has. And certainly nobody has gotten the better of a, a, a pure striking battle against McGregor. You know, wh whatever his foibles, whatever the controversy about him, he remains, you know, possibly the best striker in the UFC. He's certainly in the conversation with people like, Israel Adesanya, just based on what you value and what, what you like in a striker. And specifically, he excels at running people onto his punches. I mean, what he knocked Poirier out with in their first fight was that uh, hook behind the ear that just Poirier didn't see coming. McGregor's already a very hard hitter, but the punch you don't see coming, obviously. And I look at Poirier, his his best offense on the feet happens when he plants and squares up. I just don't think McGregor is going to give him chances to land that kind of offense. Uh, 
being a, a stationary target against McGregor, even for the split second it takes for you to plant and throw your punch or your kick, is just bad news. More uh, McGregor is uh, his his movement, his management of the distance. It's it's designed to get people reaching, coming at him, heading in the direction he wants them to go. Very good at like using kicks to shepherd the other fighter kind of in the direction he wants them to go uh, to set them up for his punches, which is what he really wants to land. It's what he did in their first fight. And for as many improvements as Poirier has made since then, I think it's what's going to happen in the second fight. In what is just, it'll be unfortunate because it is happening to just one of the nicest guys in the sport one of the most model citizens and family men in the sport. And it'll be happening at the hands of a great fighter, but well, basically kind of a miscreant and net drain on society other than his entertainment value as a fighter. Give me Conor McGregor by first round knockout. I Conor McGregor by first round knockout. I don't think it's going to be necessarily as fast and as one-sided as the first fight where Poirier didn't even I mean, didn't even like really land uh, a worthwhile strike on him and just looked like he was out of his depth. But McGregor, by first round knockout, I will enjoy the fight thoroughly and I will mute my TV the second it's over. I hope you don't mute it too quickly because we might need some comments with a recap. Uh, I agree with a lot of things you were saying. One of the things I agree with probably most in anything that you said is Dustin Poirier is just a fantastic human being. Um, if when Donald Cerrone fought Conor McGregor, I said that like if anybody deserved, based on all his stuff he did in MMA, if anybody deserved the win over Conor McGregor, it's Donald Cerrone. But then it's like, oh no, no, Dustin Poirier might deserve it even more because just a great human being, father, the whole thing. Uh, when this fight was first announced, and I and I apologize, I know my my breakdown is going to be kind of long. Um, this is a big fight. I last time Conor fought, I did a two-hour show with John Franklin called All Angles, where we break down one fight for two hours. Uh, fantastic show. I kind of missed the show. I, it's my favorite show I've done. I almost want to bring it back. Uh, anyways, when I first heard of this one, I thought Dustin Poirier has everything to gain and not too much to lose. Has some to lose, but not too much. McGregor, I said, not too much to gain and everything to lose. I still think the Diaz fight, a trilogy fight with Diaz, would have made more sense. I think it's a safer fight for Connor. It's a bigger name to the casual fans than Poirier is. It helps him win the trilogy, which I think he would have won. And also, it does probably the same amount of pay per views, if not more pay per views. Uh, that was a fight. If I'm the UFC, I'm in charge. I'm booking it. Uh, wouldn't be wouldn't go over too well with the hardcore fans, but I wouldn't care anyways. I'll start with the breakdown of Conor McGregor. You said that Conor McGregor is one of the best strikers in the UFC. I think you had in I missed. I think you missed one word. I think you missed in history. He's one of the best strikers in UFC history, currently and all time. If you say otherwise, you're simply just a McGregor hater. Uh, all right. Uh, just okay. for the record, I am not a McGregor hater, and I completely agree with qualifying him as one of the best yeah, strikers yeah. in MMA history. Yeah, yeah, I was saying I was saying you as in universal. I didn't mean you, you Ben Duffy. I meant you well, as in, if you're the well, listener. 
Well, yeah, but after I just called him like a net drain on society, like I just wanted to make sure that people yeah, yeah. understand that that does not cross over into my analysis of his sure, fighting. Sure, sure. Well, you just picked him to win by first round knockout. Uh, yeah. I, it's so funny because I've always known that I feel like I walked the right line with Connor because you have the Connor fans that will call me a Connor hater, and then you got the Connor haters will call me a Connor nut hugger. And depending on how I pick this fight, that's what I'll be accused from either side. And if I'm wrong, <laughs> then it'd be even worse. Uh, but we'll get back to the, the breaking down his skills. Uh, Southpaw, uh, the thing that always jumps out at me is how calm he is. He doesn't tense up. Also, how cool he stays under pressure in huge fight. Like, nothing seems to phase him. Uh, he's always in control. He's going to be the one that leads the dance. He's so good at finding his range early in a fight. It's It's pretty incredible. Like, like almost instantly, he knows the range. Like when you go back to the Jose Aldo punch, like he, first punch he threw, he found the range. Uh, he's very good at slipping a punch, just taking his head off the center line to land his own punches. He's got crushing power. His fadeaway straight left. Uh, if you go on ESPN Plus at any time uh, to look up any videos or anything, it's probably going to be a pop up of Gilbert. Melendez in the corner breaking down it real quickly. It's a it's 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 one of the strikes of legendary. You, know, you throw in Merkel Krokop's high kick. You throw in whatever. Like this punch is up there. Uh, he's got great vision. He seems like he sees everything that's coming at him. When he avoids strikes, he keeps his eyes glued on the target. He's got incredible precision. One of the hardest pound for pound hitters in UFC history. I mean, I think about when he was a featherweight who took a fight with Nate Diaz at welterweight, and he was dropping him with punches. Uh, he, one thing that people say is that he, that he's just a left hand, which I, his left hand is his money maker, so that gets so much attention. But he ha- he's so much more than that. His right hand he uses so well to reach, to distract, to go to the body with the right hand, and what he does is. He finally gets you to stop focusing on his left hand, and then there's the opening for the left hand. He ends he ends the fight. Uh, he works the body really well. I think about the success he had with Habib. There wasn't much success, but the time he did, he actually won around the third round. I watched back it. It was all body punches. Uh, the same thing with Chad Mendes. I mean, Chad Mendes uh, talked about Connor's kicking game. He talked about the teep kicks that it was it was not him getting tired. It was that he actually credited Connor for making him tired and hurting him. Not with his hands, but with the keep kicks. Uh, I think about the leg kicks. He doesn't get enough credit for in the first and fourth round uh, with Diaz in the second fight. He won basically from leg kicks. Uh, and then, of course, you can't think about you know we he knocked out Don Cerrone's last fight. It was a head kick that set it up. Um, some some of the things he does that are bad. He does drop his right hand a little bit. He throws a jab and he kind of drops it back. He kind of like. What they call like recycling it, which is which is the bad thing. Um, that makes him open to a high kick on that side, which is actually Poria can do. Poria has a is a really good sneaky one. He also doesn't like pressure. Uh, this is where Diaz had success in both fights. He made Connor have to spend so much energy backing up, kind of um, wasted energy. He has a wide stance, so it leaves him open to leg kicks. He has no offensive wrestling, like at all. Um, he was taken down a lot by Chad Mendez. He was taken down a lot by Habib, who takes everybody down. And, and, and to his credit, Chad Mendez took pretty much everyone down too. Uh, that said, he didn't. The one 
like the beginning of the shot that started the action in the first, or the heavy fight, he did make him have to work with some. He showed some improved hip control. Uh, cardio is also a big issue. I mean, we saw that in the first fight against Diaz, a little bit in the second fight. But some of the other things about Connor, I, I usually don't do this when I talk about fighters. I don't get too much of the psyche. But Connor's a master of mind games. I don't. The fact that he's kind of like out of the press now, not like we was before. I don't think has as much, but he's still a master of mind games. Uh, he's the only fighter that during this card, and it seems like every card, when I watch his fights, I have to watch the walk-ins too, because there's something like special about kind of walking out. Like he 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 embraces that home moment. Um, I'll go over to Dustin Poirier. Dustin Poirier is a much much better fighter than he was in the first fight. He is so big at lightweight. Um, I've it's crazy that he used to make featherweight. I've seen him live in person, and he looks like a middleweight. <laughs> like. How he makes lightweight is insane. Uh, also, a, a southpaw, high output. He hits really hard. I think you talked about that in, in moving up to lightweight. His power, not only did it follow him, it improved. Uh, and it improved because he keeps his base. His legs are always behind him. His counter right hook is one of his best strikes. I mean, he was blasting Max Holly, one of the greatest strikers in UFC history, same thing we said about Connor. He was blasting Max Hollywood that that uh, right hook, especially early in the fight. I love that he changed it when he's coming in with a flurry, or when he he did it to Dan Hooker. He did it to Max Holloway. He actually changes his stance in mid attack, so his he's always creating new angles. So you're covering and you're expecting it to be on one side of your face, and next minute he's on the other side. That's something that Israel Adesanya does. So we've seen I mean, something that Anderson Silva did. It's something with the very, very best strikers. To put yourself in that category of technique is is incredible. It's very hard to do. Um, great body kicks. He gave Eddie... I, mean, I, I watched so many Dustin Poirier's fights for this, so I'm keep bringing up things. Uh, crushed Eddie Alvarez's body with, with the leg kicks. One thing that is a problem is... As the deeper the fight goes, he gets so offensive-minded that his defense falls apart a little bit. His defense is pretty good early. He's got out like a high guard, but he, as he goes further on, uh, you mentioned Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker was landing some good power shots on him. He doesn't check leg kicks. He struggled with the leg kicks in the Dan Hooker fight. Uh, he's not a great wrestler from distance. Offensive wrestler, actually, offensive wrestler from distance. He's not a guy who can kind of shoot in your hips and take you down. But he he's kind of sneaky in the takedown, the clinch. I mean, they took Dan Hooker down in the clinch from there. Uh, defensive wrestling is not the greatest. I mean, Habib took him down. Habib takes everybody down. But Eddie Alvarez took him down a couple times. He also makes it worse because he loves to jump on a guillotine, which I which doesn't work for him. Um, he had, finds himself on the bottom. But of everything I want to say about Dustin Poirier, and is it's his heart that is to me the most impressive thing. His heart is second to none. I think about the Max Holloway fight. He won the first two rounds, and Max Holloway had this huge third round where he was looked like he's doing Max Holloway. And we just saw a week ago what Max Holloway can do when he starts flowing, and it looked like oh shoot, this is what the Max Holloway. Max, remember Max Holloway was a, was a pretty good favorite in that one. Most people were taking Max Holloway. I took Max Holloway. And Dustin Poirier dug deep where I don't think is another fighter on the planet that could have dug deep and to, re- to rally after having a terrible round against Max Holloway to actually win the fourth and fifth round. Uh, it was 2-2 two to two against Dan Hooker. And he dug deep in the fifth round in an absolute war and, and won that one. So uh, regardless of being tired, he is so mentally strong. 
that he can fight through it. So that is the biggest advantage I see against McGregor is if he can survive an early onslaught, he can make Connor start breathing hard. He can make Connor start questioning himself. Dustin Poirier won't. Dustin Poirier has proven in all his wars, you have to kill him. He he'll be in this. Uh, the deeper fight goes, it favors uh, Poirier. So I said all that to get to my prediction. I, I apologize for the long length. I just I love this fight. I rewatched their first fight, and I didn't take anything out of their matchup that is relevant to this fight except for one thing, and it was not in the X's and O's. We're not in the actual fight. It was right afterwards. It was Connor in his post-fight interview, and he said this. I said I would knock him out in the first round, and I knocked him out in the first round. You can call me Mystic Mac because I predict these things. So I haven't done it yet. I haven't used my lock. I'm using my lock now. I'm with you. I'm locking Conor McGregor as my lock of the night. I say Conor wins. However, I want to go a little deeper. Now, this is not part of my lock, but part of my prediction. Mystic Mac said for this one, he's going to knock him out in under 60 seconds. Well, he sees these things, and he predicts them, and I'm not going to go against them. So I'm going to say Conor McGregor wins by first-round knockout, and I say he does it under 60 seconds. And you know how high I am on Poirier because of the nice things I said to him. But I just think Conor sees these things, so how can I go against them? So give me Conor McGregor with a first-round knockout in under 60 seconds. There you have it. Schillen and Duffy's picks for all 12 fights from UFC 257, which takes place this Saturday, January 23rd at Etihad Arena on Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi. For a quick rundown of the picks, in the opener, Amir Albazi versus Jaga Jumagulov. We both have Albazi by decision. Nick Lentz versus Movsar Evloev. Both of us have Evloev by decision. Andrew Sanchez versus Mahmoud Muradov. Keith has Muradov by round two knockout. Ben has Muradov by decision. Khalil Roundtree versus Marcin Procneo. Both of us have Roundtree by first round knockout. Juliana Pena versus Sarah McMahon. Keith has McMahon by decision. Ben has Pena by decision. Brad Tavares versus Antonio Carlos Jr. Keith has Cardi Zapato by decision. Ben has Tavares by decision. Armin Sarukian versus Nazrat Hakparast. Ben has Sarukian by round three submission. Keith has Sarukian by decision. Marina Rodriguez versus Amanda Hibash. Ben has Hibash by first round submission. Keith has Hibash by second round submission. Matt Frivola versus Atman Azatar. Keith has Azatar by round one knockout. Ben has Azatar by round two knockout. Jessica I versus Joanne Calderwood. Both of us have I by decision. In the co-main event, Dan Hooker versus Michael Chandler. Keith has Chandler by decision. Ben has Hooker by decision. And in the main event, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. Ben has McGregor by first round knockout. Keith has McGregor by first round knockout. That is his lock of the night. And he furthermore predicts, but does not lock in that McGregor will pull it off within 60 seconds. For Keith Schillen, I'm Ben Duffy from SureDog.com. Enjoy the fights and tune in Sunday morning for the recap show.